Hi, everybody. Quick lead in before we start this episode. We're recording this and releasing it after Rings of Power has started on Amazon Prime. And unfortunately, the Internet has done unsurprising things with the direction that that show has taken. One day the Internet's going to surprise us, Colin. It's going to be awesome. I hope I'm alive for when that happens. Otherwise, maybe I'll have good Twitter in heaven. The cast and crew of uh, Rings of Power have found themselves under fire, and I would like to read a portion of their statement. J.R.R. Tolkien created a world which, by definition, is multicultural, a world in which free peoples from different races and cultures join together in fellowship to defeat the forces of evil. Rings of Power reflects that. Our world has never been all white. Fantasy has never been all white. Middle Earth is not all white. Black, indigenous, and people of color belong in Middle-earth, and they are here to stay. It was important to us that we read that at the outset here to let you know that we stand in full solidarity with the cast and crew uh, in believing that that is the wishes and intentions of J.R.R. Tolkien. Fandom's a place for love. This is a topic you will hear. We have a lot of love on and anyone who wants to further their knowledge in this world, we're excited to go on that journey with you. With that, enjoy the episode. But I suppose the great tales are like that, Mr. Cullen. The people in them never really thought they'd get through them. Why, Baron never thought he would get that Silmaril nope. in the Tower of Thangorodrum. And that was a blacker place and a greater danger than we've ever been in. And just to think, Mr. Cullen, that Silmaril went on to Arendelle, oh, and then some of that light, why, I just never thought of this, some of that light is in that very star glass that the lady gave what? you. Why don't the great tales never end? What in the world? You're talking about a bunch of things, like it's a story that we've spoken about before. Did, did, did I miss something in like the last 400 pages? Was I supposed to have gotten something that I didn't? Why, Mr. Cullen, didn't you read the Silmarillion when we were back at Rivendell? The Silma... Hang on, you said that somebody got a Silma what's-it, and then you just said Silmarillion. Are you giving me spoilers for another story? Oh, my stars and garters, Mr. Cullen. Have we got a lot to discuss? Well, you won't do a leprechaun, but we're going to stay focused on hobbits and the world of Middle-earth, diving into the works of Tolkien. Welcome back to the I Never Got Into That podcast, the podcast celebrating nerddoms of all shapes and sizes, and boy... Have we got a big one here today? This uh, this is daunting here. How are you, Philip? Is at the outset of this episode. I'm I'm good. I'm excited. <laughs> I would imagine so. Now we have listeners who are also very excited to hear you speak on this topic. So uh, I am one of them because I know I've owed I've owed Laura a Galadriel talk for a long time, <laughs> and that's why we will not be speaking on Galadriel at all this episode. Yep. Just skipping uh, that entirely. They're going to have to continue <laughs> waiting. <laughs> okay, so, um, you know, what a better time to get into to the things of Tolkien. We've discussed and joked before that we obviously have read Lord of the Rings because we are right. men of culture and science. I took a science mm -hmm. class at one point. Indeed. <laughs> Indubitably. Um, 
But with Rings of Power coming out on Amazon Prime, I had to shamefully admit to you one of my deepest, darkest secrets, which is I don't have any idea what happens before The Hobbit. This, <laughs> this is... A, a secret you share with lots of people. That is, that is valid. As I have come to learn, it's not a shame that I bear alone. It's more that those with the knowledge have an extra badge of honor, I think, in the, in the <laughs> nerddom hierarchy. Well, since, since Tolkien became mainstream, there has to be some way to still be a Tolkien snob. <laughs> and so the Silmarillion is sort of the gateway into that. And then beyond that, it's Unfinished Tales and then the history of Middle-earth and Tolkien's letters. So what you're telling me is you're a Tolkien hipster. Yeah. yeah. Got it. Roger that. Well... Uh, as we always start with our exposure to the topic, uh, I, for one, began crazy, crazy early. Um, one of the books that we read when I was going to sleep as a child was the illustrated version of The Hobbit, which used the still frames from the BBC animated film, um, which is oh, cool. a delightful little film. And from The Hobbit... I read the Chronicles of Narnia because, you know, they're just a little more approachable. And then it was into mm-hmm. Lord of the Rings proper. Uh, and that it's a great memory for me because that was something that my father had read and he reread. So we were reading them together and getting to just talk nerdy book stuff, uh, which is why when I finally stopped homeschooling and went to school, I was like, wait a second. This is this is not normal. Like. You guys don't passionately love Strider? What are you talking about? How? Uh, and then high school, the movies came out, and everybody was like, oh, yeah, we have obviously are huge fans. Don't co-opt me. Yes. What about you? Where, where, did, where did Middle Earth first arrive for you? Uh, my earliest memory of my dad's voice is him... Um, singing one of the Tom Bombadil rhymes oh. from the early chapters of the Fellowship of the Ring. Uh, I don't know. I don't think that he read me the whole thing very early, but he a, a lot of really important books to him. He would read little sections of it to us when when we were kids, um, knowing that some elements of it were you know more intense than we could handle when we were real small, uh, and so he would read little episodes from it. Uh, and the the Tom Bombadil episode was was one of those because it's silly and it's fun. Yeah. Uh, and and so um, that's uh, I don't remember when I read The Hobbit for the first time. I know that the first time I tried to read The Lord of the Rings, I was about eleven, uh, and I didn't I didn't get all the way through it. I got about midway through the Two Towers or something like that, and um fell off at this chapter that's titled of herbs and stewed rabbit, because that didn't sound <laughs> interesting at all, even though that's like a super action filled yeah. chapter. It it's going right. Yeah. Uh, and then came back to it probably when I, probably the next year uh, and started again and made it all the way through that time and saw the animated Hobbit, saw the animated Lord of the Rings, um, saw the animated Return of the King, 
uh, and was a fully, fully committed Tolkien nerd. Um, started probably made my first run at the Silmarillion when I was 13 or 14. Uh, wow. Did not get anywhere. <laughs> like it just, what is happening here? This is where, where are the hobbits? I don't understand. <laughs> there is so much uh, there. So I, yeah. Um, and anytime at a bookstore that I found a book that said Tolkien on it that I didn't have, I would try to talk someone into buying it for nice. me. Uh, and so collected a lot of, of those. Um, and I've never stopped reading and rereading Lord of the Rings and enjoying everything related to Tolkien. And that is why to start things here, uh, because as the premise of this show being things that we uh, initiate ourselves into, we're never going to be able to justify doing a right, proper Lord of the Rings episode. Uh, We're going to have a quick rundown here on who the person is that brought us these incredible genre-defining works. Uh, And Philip is going to give us the the unjustly brief, uh, but necessarily... Uh, summarized history of Mr. J.R.R. Tolkien. Uh, Yeah. Uh, So John Ronald Rule Tolkien was born in 1892 in South Africa, uh, where his father was working for the British government. Um, He was only in South, South Africa for a few years of his life. He and his mother and brother returned to England in 1895 when he was just three. So he had really no memories of, um, of South Africa other than little, little flashes and stories. His mom told him about things that happened. Um, shortly after their return, the intention was that his father would join them. Um, after they had made it back to England, he was finishing their affairs there. And then he would come back to England to pick up his new job. Uh, but he became ill and died uh, shortly after they left um, and died in 1896 when Tolkien was four. Mm-hmm. Uh, his mom used the money that they had to buy a cottage uh, at a place called Serhole Mill in the countryside. And that's where Tolkien spent the next five years of his life um, and was what he remembered as the sort of the happiest period of his life and a lot of a lot of the sort of imagery of middle earth and particularly of the shire derives from this childhood out in the countryside he was being homeschooled by his mom he learned latin and anglo-saxon um by before he was seven wow uh, came to love myths and fairy tales, and he and one of his cousins, who were playmates, invented their his he invented his first language to share with one of his cousins uh, as a secret language that they could talk to each other in. That's rad. Uh, at that age, however, in 1900, uh, running out of money, um, his mom moved into Birmingham where she could get a job. If you don't know. Birmingham was a city that was essentially created during the industrial revolution, um, as a, as a factory town. Mm. Uh, and so to go from the English countryside to 
the place where all of the stereotypes about the industrial revolution come from was a pretty stark change yeah. and Tolkien hated it. Just absolutely hated it. Uh, his mother then died in 1904 when Tolkien was 12. Mm. Um, and pretty much for the rest of his life, he would, he would essentially blame Birmingham for that. Um, he, 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 that was his, his view on it is that the city is what had destroyed, what had killed his mom. Wow. Uh, Tolkien and his brother were taken in by father Francis Morgan, uh, their parish priest. And he saw to their education and rearing for the remainder of their childhood. Uh, Tolkien attended um, King Edwards as his, what we would call high school or secondary school. Uh, And there he met with some of his closest friends and they founded the TCBS or Tea Club and Barovian Society. Uh, They met in... They met in a tea house to talk about poetry, talk about stories, and to share things that they had written with each other and to encourage one another in their literary pursuits. Uh, And these became Tolkien's best uh, best friends. Um, While at King Edward's, Tolkien was living in a boarding house uh, and upstairs from him lived another boarder named Edith Bratt. Uh, Tolkien encountered Edith when she, when he heard her playing the piano and singing for their landlady, uh, and was just smitten. Tolkien was just thunderstruck by her, uh, and began seeking every opportunity to hang out with her, uh, discovered that she also was brilliant and thoughtful and clever he brought her to the Tea Club and Barovian Society a couple of times, much to the confusion of <laughs> his uh, of his of his of his bros. Um, the he b- began to court her. However, his guardian, uh, Father Morgan, ordered him to break off the courtship. Um, part of this was Tolkien was a devout Catholic and Edith was Protestant, but also his his guardian thought it was a distraction from his studies. And so he was forbidden to court her until he had finished his, um, he, until he was an adult, essentially until he finished his studies completely. Uh, so, and Tolkien did Tolkien broke off his courtship with her uh, and um, they parted ways. Uh, in 1914, while at university, Tolkien wrote the first Middle-earth poetry, uh, which were some bits of the story of Arendelle, the Mariner, um, inspired by a just a line of Anglo-Saxon poetry he found that refers to, uh, that translates as, Hail Arendelle, which means morning star, um, brightest of the stars over Middle-earth, or Midgard, as Anglo-Saxon would describe this world. Uh, and that is the origin of both Arendelle and the use of the term Middle Earth. Uh, in 1916, Tolkien graduated university um, and was uh, re- achieved his, his majority. Um, he began graduate work and at the same time 
he was officially free from his guardianship and immediately contacted Edith, <laughs> uh, only to discover that she was engaged. Oh. But upon receiving Tolkien's letter, she returned the engagement ring, broke off the engagement, and became engaged to Tolkien. Wow. What a boy. That is the most successful my parents are gone come over text of all time. (laughs) (laughs) The reason it was so swift is that in 1914, as the historians among us will know, is the beginning of World War I, uh, and Tolkien was of an age, but rather to the scandal of his class, um, Tolkien didn't immediately enlist. He decided to finish his university education first. But upon graduation uh, and having now married Edith, Tolkien felt that he could no longer withhold from what he thought was his duty. And so he enlisted Mm. um, right after marrying Edith and arrived on the Western Front just in time for the Battle of the Somme. Uh, which is a four-month-long battle in which over a million are wounded. Yeah, and that is that's one that would hard. It'd be very hard to have missed that battle. Yes, um, Tolkien became seriously ill as a result of the battle. He wasn't wounded, but he became ill with probably with pneumonia. Um, that was, I think, referred to at the time as just trench fever, which is to say, you've been living in a water-filled ditch for several months. Your body don't like it. This is not what we were made for. Yeah. He was returned to England, um, and there Edith joined him in the hospital and found a still very young man whose body was physically devastated and who was mentally just completely lost. Um all of Tolkien's friends from the TCBS, but one were dead. Mm. Um, so his, his whole friend circle was eradicated. Uh, and um, Tolkien described later on uh, to his son, uh, his memory of Edith when she came to see him in the hospital. And this is how he described Edith. Her hair was raven, her skin clear, her eye brighter than you have ever seen them, and she could sing and dance. Wow. Uh, And he basically, Edith brought him back. Um, He, uh, by the time he recovered, uh, his deployment was, his enlistment time was over. Uh, and he began just to make some money, just to make a little bit of side money. He began work on a small project called the Oxford English dictionary. Just little, little work, <laughs> little, little thing. Yeah. Um, he worked, he worked on uh, a very small section of it dealing particularly with older English words because that was his expertise. Uh, he and Edith had would eventually go on, have four children, John, Michael, Christopher, and Priscilla. Um, in 1924, he began a pro- became a professor at Oxford University, which is the job he would hold until his retirement in 1959. While at Oxford, he famously befriended C.S. Lewis uh, and formed a new literary club that became known as the Inklings. Uh, and in 1930, Tolkien famously found a 
loose piece of paper in a student's essay uh, and wrote on it randomly on a lark, in a hole in the ground there lived a hobbit. Uh, without knowing what a hobbit oh. was or why the hobbit should live oh, in a hole. I love that so and much. He, and he began he began making up stories about the hobbit uh, for to tell his bedtime stories to his kids. Uh, much of Middle Earth begins that way as bedtime stories he told to his kids. Uh, and supposedly... Um, this is a, a recollection from from Christopher Tolkien. Uh, what happened was um, Christopher kept catching inconsistencies in the story <laughs> and calling them out during the story. And so he, he said that one night his father put his pipe down, stood up from the chair, walked over to his bureau, pulled out a pad of paper, muttering, damn the boy, <laughs> and sat down and began taking notes as he... As he told the story. <laughs> I love that so much. That's amazing. Um, Tolkien was pretty well known in academic circles for work on uh, Anglo-Saxon literature. He gave a really famous lecture called Beowulf, the Monsters and the Critics, in which he basically argued that everyone was reading Beowulf wrong. <laughs> like everyone. Right. Like the entire English speaking world and others were reading Beowulf wrong because they were reading it as a historical thing about Anglo-Saxon culture or a treatise on the Anglo-Saxon language. And the point of Tolkien's essay or Tolkien's lecture was essentially to say, this is a cool story about hunt fighting monsters. Yeah. Yep, that's what's wrong with you. There's a dragon in this. <laughs> Sometimes cool is just cool, man. Right. Uh, and during this middle earth was coming into existence. The first full middle earth story was actually written in the trenches. Um, it's called the fall of Gondolin. Uh, and it would become a sort of theme throughout his story. A lot of, a lot of his experience in world war one, as it does with it, as it did with anyone who went through that, uh, would have a long impact on his, on his work. Um, the Hobbit was published in 1937. Tolkien had written it up. He brought it to Alan Unwin, uh, who gave it to his uh, son, his 11-year-old son, to read, uh, which is how he decided on what children's books to publish. <laughs> Alan Unwin would give them to his 11-year-old son. And if his son came back and said, yeah, this is good, I'd read it, uh, then he would do it. And that was true of The Hobbit. So The Hobbit was published in 1937. Uh, 1939 to 45, World War II, uh, where Tolkien trained, got himself trained as a code breaker uh, and worked at a civilian listening post to warn of air raids. Um, both of his sons deployed in the war. Uh, Christopher was deployed uh, with the Royal Air Force in Africa. Uh, I can't remember where John deployed to. Uh, and while he was doing that, he had also begun work on a sequel, The Lord of the Rings. Uh, and Throughout World War II, he sent chapters to his sons for their critique and review. And so the, the story began to take place. Uh, in, 19, in 1954, The Lord of the Rings was published. And this is the point at which Tolkien began to become renowned as an author. Uh, the, the Hobbit had not really gotten him that. It had been kind of a niche success. But in 19, by 1959, The Hobbit and Lord of the Rings were doing well enough that Tolkien retired from, from Oxford and became a full-time author. He spent the rest of his life working on Middle-earth. Um, and a lot of what we read in the Silmarillion is Tolkien fleshing out the 
the myths that he had invented and trying to put them into a complete form. Um, Edith died in 1971. Uh, Tolkien died two years later and they are buried together in a common grave. Uh, the Silmarillion was published four years later in 1977 uh, after Christopher Tolkien with the aid of a guy who would go on to become a successful fantasy author, Guy Gavriel Kay, uh, put the notes of Tolkien into a single legible form um, where there were lots of versions of the stories. Christopher Tolkien just picked either the latest one or the one that made the most sense with the narrative as a whole and tried to string them together into a, a single corpus of myths and published that posthumously. Since then, Christopher Tolkien has published uh, dozens of other works of his father's on um, on Middle-earth, early versions of stories, things like that, so that Middle-earth is certainly the best documented fictional universe <laughs> in existence. Bar none. Um, and then Christopher... Christopher Tolkien uh, then passed away just a few, just a, a couple of years ago, um, and the guardianship of Middle Earth has passed to the Tolkien estate, uh, with I think Christopher Tolkien's son as the as the head of that. And there are still things from from Middle Earth being published; they're just not published by Christopher Tolkien anymore. So it the the story goes on as as Sam rightly noted. Um, yeah, so that's, that's Tolkien's life and you and I have read the Lord of the Rings, but you had not read any of the deeper mysteries of Middle Earth. And one of the, I think one of the brilliant things about Lord of the Rings that makes Middle Earth feel so real is things like the random myth name dropping Mm -hmm. that Tolkien does all throughout it. Little snatches of poetry here and there, random mentions of Gondolin and they are in Dell and Baron and Luthien and all this stuff that Tolkien, some of it he knew about already. And some of it, he just sort of threw it in there and figured he'd make it up later. But I think that's what makes middle earth feel so fleshed out. And so the thing I like about the Silmarillion, which is not nearly as actiony a read as Lord of the Rings it, there is Accurate. definitely substantial sections that are dry in the Silmarillion. So let let none uh, be confused that we're suggesting that the Silmarillion is a is a rip roaring action filled <laughs> yarn. Um, it has lots of action, but it's very very dense. And but I think what I like about the Silmarillion is when you read it. Well, when you understand it, which is maybe not always on the first read, it certainly wasn't for me. Um, it changes the way that you read Lord of the Rings and the Hobbit later on. Mm. And I, I think that's what I appreciated about it. Yeah, I would I would definitely co-sign that. I said early on in my reading that uh, it was it was a real challenge because I would describe it as though my brain were trying to eat a saltine cracker after just doing the cinnamon challenge because it's so, so dry. Um, <laughs> it's all good. Uh, but I, I had to reread the creation story probably four times before I was comfortable mm-hmm. moving on and going, okay, I think, I think I get it. Like, they sang and life when it was just, uh, 
it was presented so matter of factly um, that it it definitely reads <clears throat> as though it were published posthumously and as though we were working off of things he were going to make grander, um, which yeah. I greatly appreciate nobody trying to do for him, knowing that what we're reading is yeah. his thoughts uh, is is a great, great way to approach this. I love the beautiful accidental uh, symmetry there. I did not realize that he had created these as bedtime stories. And you and I both said that our first recollection of them was being read to us in bed. Like mm-hmm. that's, that's incredible. Then here we are yeah. almost a hundred years later saying the exact same. Tolkien as a, as a storyteller for his kids must just, I mean, here are things Tolkien did for his kids. Uh, one of his sons had a little toy doll that his son that he had named Tom Bombadil because it was a silly sounding thing. <laughs> no and kidding. Tolkien just made up all sorts of all sorts of little adventures that Tom Bombadil would go on. Uh, and then when he published Lord of the Rings, he decided when he published The Hobbit, he decided that Tom Bombadil seemed like a character that Hobbit parents would tell their children stories mm-hmm. about. Um, and that's why that's how Hom- Tom Bombadil made it into Middle Earth. It. Uh, on a vig- visit to Brighton, uh, his son John dropped a little toy dog that he had while walking along the beach and lost it mm-hmm. and was just devastated. It was like his favorite toy. And so Tolkien sat him down and said, well, here, let me tell you this so that you'll understand and feel better about it. It turns out that do- dog, Rover, was not a toy. He was a real dog that had been transformed into a toy <laughs> by a wizard he offended. And let me tell you what he's up to. And now you can buy Rover Random and read it. It's a little novella about Rover's journey back to the yard where he came from <laughs> after uh, being turned into a toy. That's adorable. Um, his children wrote letters to Santa Claus, to Father Christmas, because we're mm-hmm. bringing Tolkien wrote them back. Yes. As Father that's Christmas. That's awesome. He invented he invented handwriting for Father Christmas. <laughs> like he decided what Father Christmas's handwriting looked like so that his children couldn't identify it as his. Um and told them all about the problems that he'd had that year dealing with his you know, he has a, a polar bear friend, uh but there are occasionally uh ice trolls and things to deal with up in the North Pole. Um, and you can also get these Father Chris, Father Chris, or letters from Father Christmas is another thing. I've never heard read. of a method author before. That's awesome. <laughs> it's created a it's whole absolutely brilliant. That's that's outstanding. Mm-hmm. So we're going to go through yeah. a a quick rundown here. This is the the midnight before the final cram session of the ages of Middle Earth. Uh, this is so when when I said that I was going to read the Silmarillion for this episode, Philip sent me um, a dissertation in Discord, <laughs> and it is still. This episode is coming out late. This is five weeks after we decided on this topic. This is still the best summary that I have come across. Uh, so, <laughs> and I. I have watched hours of YouTube at this point. Um, so we're going to go through this and uh, Philip is going to, to fill in the areas that, <clears throat> that he wants further fleshed out. And I am just going to read, I will do the, the narrating 
of Philip's doctoral dissertation on the Silmarillion in brief. Um, I'm going to mispronounce a bunch of things here. So for sure, jump all over me on that and have me say that right. And also, if you're allergic to the letter F, then uh, this is going to be very challenging <laughs> for you. You you might want to stop. Um, Eru Iluvatar. We are talking about the mm-hmm. gods of Middle-earth. The one. Creatures, the Ainur, or angels. And Eru conducts a great music. This is the, the creation of the universe. Comes from mm-hmm. this melody being created. Basically by Eru as god and their angels. Melkor, the mightiest of the Ainur wanted to sing their own song and make their own music and wholly different from the great music and creates a discord. But the great music overwhelmed and subsumed Melkor's again and again, proving that no purpose can truly contradict that of Eru. So, uh, so Melkor just kept trying to break into a, a guitar solo and the, and the Ainur were like, nah, we're making the world. Get out of the way. Right? He is, he's the dark and the light here. What? What's cool uh, about this, uh, aside from the world be created in music, which I just think is a really neat mm-hmm. concept, um, is that this, there's this um, three discords of Melkor as the story goes on. Uh, and each one more severe than the last. Uh, and what it ends up reflecting is the, the, the narrative that the Silmarillion carries out because there are essentially three big conflicts involving Melkor uh, or Morgoth, as he will become known in middle earth um, in which he will rise up and try to destroy what Eru is doing or unmake it and be defeated. And then his purpose is used to Eru's good. And then over and over again, this happens. So what you end up getting in the Ainur Lindale, the, the song of the, of the Ainur is a, a sort of metaphysical summary of the whole story that you're about to read. Yeah. Um, which I, I think is very cool. It's also the place where you kind of have to recognize that as a devout Catholic, Tolkien's worldview is shaped by that. Mm. And we see the obvious uh, God and Lucifer right. um, analogy present here, even though Tolkien's not Lewis and he's not quite creating a an allegory the way Lewis is in a lot of ways. It's he doesn't know he, he doesn't he's not his worldview doesn't allow him to write yeah. in any other way. And so there is a, a distinctness to it there. Uh, this is not the travels of Frank so Herbert part here. of that. Right. Yeah. And so there's, there's a distinct element to Tolkien's world that is. Eru is omnipotent. He doesn't have an equal. There's no chance that he ends up losing. It's just a matter of what happens down on middle earth while he's eventually coming to his victory. Mm-hmm. And that's, I think also kind of an interesting take on, on fantasy. Um, 
from, you know, the guy inventing fantasy as we go. Some of the Ainur go down into the world created by the music and begin to shape it. The greater are called Valar and the lesser Maiar. Of the Valar, Manwe is the greatest and chief and the one who knows the mind of Eru best. Varda, the Lady of Stars, is most revered by the elves. Mandos, the Keeper of Fate. Melkor also went down and drew away some of the Maiar to serve him. Whatever the Valar shaped, Melkor sought to mar, and eventually the Valar determined they must bind Melkor. And they made war, and captured him and imprisoned him in Valinor. In this time, the world was lit by two great lamps, these were destroyed in the war, but from their essence, the Valar created to created two great trees to give light, and Valinor had light, but Middle-earth was lit only by stars. That's part one of the Silmarillion mm-hmm. in the, the boiled-down concentrate. Sure, yeah. Part two. In Middle-earth, Eru had placed mortal races to awaken in his own time. Before the awakening of the firstborn, the Valur Aule, 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 there we go. Aule. The Valar Aule crafted the dwarves in secret, wishing also to create in reverence and imitation of Eru, not in rebellion, as Melkor had done. When Eru confronted him, he repented and prepared to destroy his creation, but Eru stopped him and adopted the dwarves as his own but commanded that they be put to sleep until the awakening of his own children. The elves awake under the stars, and Melkor found them first, and sought to make them afraid, capturing some and twisting them into his own design. But the Vala Orome, the hunter, sought and found them and befriended them, and he invited them to join the Valar in Valinor, and the elves set out. Some elves remained behind, and would be called Avari. Others lingered along the way and would be called Sindar. Of these, the greatest was Thingol, and he lingered in Middle-earth because he met and fell in love with the Maya called Melian. And they wed, and became the rulers of a great forest realm of elves. The other elves, the Noldor and the Vanyar and the Teleri, traveled to the coast of Middle-earth, where the Vala Ulmo, lord of the sea, drew an island across the sea to transport them to Valinor. The Teleri settled by the coast for love of the sea, but the other elves traveled inland and settled among the Valar. The story mostly concerns the Noldor. The king of the Noldor was Finway, brother of Thingol, and Finway's first son was Fionor, whose mother died in childbirth. Finway later remarried and had two more sons, Fingolfin, and Finarfin. Feanor was the greatest of craftsmen, and he created the Silmarils, two great jewels that caught the light of the trees in them. Melkor, meanwhile, was released because he seemed to repent, but he went among the Noldor and deceived them to make them believe the Valar sought to prevent their return to Middle-earth in order to deny them their birthright. Melkor also began to lust for the Silmarils. This brought strife among the Noldor, especially between Feanor, who believed some of Melkor's lies, and his half-brothers, who did not. Before we carry 
further into that. I love that we are at the outset here, given the the first instance in the world of Middle Earth, a physical object causing such great lust and and jealousy and possessiveness that we go to war. I, I think that's uh, that's a big theme um, in in Tolkien is so Tolkien's I mean Tolkien's a um shoot the the word just jumped out of my head but um Tolkien's very concerned about the environment Tolkien's very concerned about the natural world and so when Tolkien thinks of making there's two ways to make as he sees it there's making that is tending and sculpting and crafting lovingly to bring the beauty out of the the, be- the beauty of the potential out of the object that is that is there the way a, a, a sculptor makes something out of a lump of clay or something like that uh, or in Tolkien's usual metaphor as a gardener mm-hmm. uh, tends plants as opposed to taking something and beating it into submission to serve your needs, regardless of the intended potential uh, as say a blacksmith might a sword blade or uh, a machinist might a part for a, for some sort of big machine. Um, And so in, we have lots of famous craftsmen and craftsmen tend to be both great and also in Tolkien's world, they tend to be subject to temptation. Mm. Um, most of the, <laughs> most of the people who fall, um, Feanor, uh, Sauron even are connected in some way to the Vala Aule, who's the craftsman of the gods. Right. Um, he's the creator of the dwarves and all this stuff. Uh, the dwarves are great, but the dwarves have a tendency to be too in love with the work of their own hands. And this can make them tend towards greed. Fanor loves his work, the Silmarils perhaps too much. Um, and I, I think one of the cool things is you've got this symmetry here where, or not this symmetry, this, this through line here where the light of the lamps becomes the light of the trees and the Silmarils catch the light of the trees. And one of the Silmarils becomes the star of Arendel and the star of Arendel goes into the file that Galadriel gives to Frodo that Sam uses to drive off this horrible spider monster um, as a light. When all other lights goes out, it's a little bit of this eternal light that's been present throughout the entire history of middle earth. Mm. Uh, And I think that's just such a neat, a neat theme that Tolkien includes here. Um, But yeah, that distinction of loving something and tending it and caring for it versus lusting after something and desiring to control it and consume it and make it your own and bend it to your will is very much a part, something near and dear to Tolkien's heart. And he looked at, in our world, he looked at the way that cities were sprawling out and industry was growing and trees were being cut down unnecessarily as he saw it to clear the way for more factories and more roads and things like that as 
um, one of the things that was essentially wrong with the world. Uh, and that's, we see that, that theme a lot in, well, Sauron's the industrialist. Yeah. Well, and now that you've given <laughs> uh, in, me that biography, I have this, this vivid realization that Sauron is basically creating like Satan's Birmingham. That, like even thinking to the Jackson films, mm-hmm. because that's what they cleared so much space. And for yeah. why and you were, you're just cutting things down yeah. to do nothing. And then to have that juxtaposed to his childhood, that makes a lot of sense in what, what we're seeing there. Yeah. Wow. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah. Melkor made alliance with a primordial creature of darkness in spider form called Ungoliant. And together they stole. Nice thanks, job. man. That one I was a little nervous about. I'm not going to lie. Together, they stole into Valinor and poisoned the trees, darkening Valinor. Under cover of the darkness, Melkor slew Finway and stole the Silmarils from the vaults of his palace and then fled with Ungoliant back to Middle-earth. In response, Feanor and his sons swore a terrible and binding oath to pursue to the death any who kept a Silmaril from them. Fingolfin and Finarfin and their children swore no oath, but held themselves bound to join Feanor, as his was the head of the Noldor now that his father had died. The Noldor armed themselves and pursued Melkor without seeking leave of the Valar, On the way, they were met by Mandos, who pronounced a doom that none of them would be allowed to return once they had departed. At this, Finarfin and some of the Noldor turned back, but his children, notably Finriel and Galadriel, went on. Finrod for friendship, and Galadriel because she had become enamored of the idea of a realm in Middle-earth. The Noldor traveled to the coast, and their Feanor and his sons sought the help of the Teleri. When the Teleri would not join them, nor give up their ships, the Noldor attacked, and this was the first kinslaying. Feanor's host stole the ships of the Teleri and set sail, abandoning the host of Fingolfin, who was forced to instead cause an isthmus of ice at the north end of the world, and many died along the way. Fingolfin, Finrod, and Galadriel are noted as not taking part in the kinslaying. In Middle-earth, the Noldor establish kingdoms. Feanor wins an early battle against Melkor, who is now called Morgoth, and pursues him. But he is ambushed by Balrogs and slain. His, son besiege, his sons besiege the fortress of Morgoth, Thangoradrim, and settle kingdoms around it in mm-hmm. a great ring. Other elves, notably Finrod and Fingon, create hidden refuges at Gondolin and Nargothrond. Did I get Nar- Is that the right? Yeah. Oh, that's- I, I, this this yeah, one's putting me right. through it. Thingol and the Sindar elves allow the Noldor to settle, but do not join in their war. As the Noldor leave, the Valar create the sun and the moon to light Middle-earth. With the first rising of the sun... Men awake in Middle-earth. The creatures of Morgoth fear the sun because they were created before it rose and it was unmarred by his hand. The pilot of the sun is an uncorrupted Balrog. Many fell into the service and worship of Morgoth, but others traveled west and met the elves and the dwarves who had also awakened in the mountains. Of these two kindreds are important 
to the story. The house of Baor and the house of Hador. Hador? Hador? Mm-hmm. Who became elf friends. Hador. And allied with the elves in their war. That is, that is such a beautiful world expansion for me. Like, we've literally mm-hmm. seen the construction of the world, and then with great purpose, we expand. And I think there's something so strikingly, poetically beautiful about the first sunrise being an event we get to read about. Yeah. Um, and I think one of the the things that we get here is um, Tolkien is trying to play very subtly with the presence of Eru in the story. Um, and one of the things that he's played with there is men. Men are not connected to the Valar at all. The Valar don't know men are out there. They know about the elves and they know when the, and they've been looking for the elves um, when they find them, but men are, are a secret known only to Eru and they're, they're born and have an entirely different relationship. The elves are bound to middle earth uh, for as long as it exists. Whereas when men die, they go beyond middle earth to somewhere else Mm -hmm. that is undefined in the story uh, and so you get this sort of subtle play with that. And it, and it even, it continues to show up. I think this is what's brilliant about Tolkien's myth-making is all throughout um, Lord of the Rings, everything about elves is starlight. Yeah. Like everything about elves is, is takes place in twilight. Stars are their symbols. Um, they, they revere, I almost said worship, but that's not the right term. Revere. Uh, the stars and uh, all of that is their their whole deal because they existed for thousands of years before the sun ever rose. Um, whereas dawn is the hope of men. Yeah. Sun, the sunrise is is the thing that men associate with hope, and we see that over and over again in Lord of the Rings uh, at the Battle of Helm's Deep. Aragorn goes out on the battlements and speaks with the orcs and, and says he looks for the dawn and the orcs are like, what's that? We're the fighting Urukai. We don't stop fighting in the day. And Aragorn says, yet dawn is ever the hope of men and mm-hmm. advises them to be gone lest they be killed. And it's Gandalf that arrives at dawn the next day. Uh, the battle of Pelennor fields begins when the Rohi- when the riders of Rohan arrive, blowing their horns to greet the opening of sun of the sunrise, breaking the darkness that Mor- Mordor has poured forth. Uh, and so these natural themes uh, are are just constants throughout all of Tolkien's work, and I think that's so um, that's so neat. And one of the things I like about the Silmarillion is you get to see you get to see the origins of the why is it that way, right? Um, and it, I think it's I think it's just amazing that Tolkien took the time to build out the world in that kind of detail. Damn the boy. (laughs) (laughs) After centuries, Morgoth broke the siege in the battle of sudden flame and the battle of unnumbered tears in which fought the first fire dragons. Thinking all was lost, Fingolfin in despair rode to the gates of Thangoradrim and challenged Morgoth to single combat. 
Afraid to be named a coward, Morgoth came forth. Morgoth killed Fingolfin, but Fingolfin wounded Morgoth so that he limped for the rest of time. The free people were scattered, but Feanor's sons still felt themselves bound to pursue their oath, and this would lead them into great evils. It is in the aftermath of this that the tales of the great human heroes like Baron and Luthien and Turin Turumbar take place. Baron is the heir of the house of Beor, and Luthien the daughter of Thingol and Melian. They fall in love. Go ahead. So these these two battles are um uh Shears and Sudden Flame are are so it's absolutely it's absolutely just world war it's the song mm. like it's he he gives them to us not in he doesn't give us battles in military gritty detail right. he's not it's not George R R Martin it's not blood and guts because Tolkien doesn't Tolkien doesn't do that and i think it's partly because he's writing mythically but i think it's partly because he doesn't have any interest in revisiting uh, that he's in he's fiction. seen it but yeah and so what he does instead, and I think this is speaks to the inherent optimism in Tolkien. He's a very melancholy author, but I think that but the inherent optimism that's there is Tolkien takes these two events that are absolutely catastrophic defeats. They're horrifying in their scale. They're fighting against, against dragons and demons. I mean, we see one Balrog in Middle Earth in The Lord of the Rings, and it's absolutely catastrophic. Yeah. Uh, and Balrog is plural mm-hmm. most of the time in the Silmarillion. Mm-hmm. It's Balrog host. Uh, yeah, and you have the first dragon, um, the first fire dragon, Glorung, goes out in the Battle of Sudden Flame. Awesome story about dwarves is Glorung goes out into the battle, and the dwarves rush him, uh, and the king of the dwarves is killed. Only when the dwarves swarm over Glorung because their armor is fireproof Mm. and they swarm over Glorung like ants and just hack at him. Uh, And they only stop because he rolls over onto their king and crushes him to death. And the dwarves then stop fighting, lift their king and sing a dirge as they carry him off the battlefield. That's so metal. Uh, Isn't it? That's so metal. Um, But you have these... He he redeems the most t- horrible thing in his life, war, by providing heroism in it. And I think that's where his optimism is seen in this one. At the end, you have um, uh, uh, Hurin, the, the, the heir of the house of Hador, um, stays to hold a rear guard so the, the last host of the elves can escape back to Gondolin. And he's overwhelmed by uh, by a host of trolls, and his shield is broken, and he's wielding his axe um, double-handed and killing trolls and orcs until there's this big heap around him. And you have this awesome line where it's, and every time he slew, he cried out, day shall come again. Mm. Um, and, and so you have these heroic stands and this grand thing, and it's, Part of it is Tolkien's love of Nordic myth, where that's, I mean, that's a very yep. Viking yep. thing, right? Uh, but I think part of it is Tolkien is trying to redeem in his mind the the horror of war by looking on the heroism that is possible in it, even in the midst of the horror. Um, the story of Baron and Luthien is 
I think Tolkien's favorite, uh, which is what we were getting to there. Um, I really like this story because it's an inversion of everything we expect in a fairy tale about a princess. Yeah. Uh, oh, sorry, my headphones are about to let me switch. I'm going to use this nifty little mark clip feature. Hello. Yep. Okay. Um, Baron and Lucy is this inversion of everything because what what happens is the <laughs> the handsome prince um, get ends up ends up captured by the evil sorcerer, and it's the beautiful princess that has to come and save yeah. him. Yeah. Baron is the heir of the house of Bayor, and Luthien the daughter of Thingol and Melian. They fall in love, but Thingol declares the bride price to be one of the Silmarils. Baron sets out on the hopeless quest and is aided by Finrod, who was a friend of his father. The sons of Feanor pursue them and briefly capture Luthien, who has followed Baron, but their hunting hound, Juan, turns on them from love of Luthien, and because he is a very good boy. Remember, as formal <laughs> as this is, this is all Philip's writing here. Baron and Finrod are captured by Sauron, who defeated Finrod in a rap battle. Essentially. It's, a, it's an accurate description. <laughs> but Luthien and Huan arrive, and Huan kills all the monsters Sauron sends, and then pins Sauron himself until he surrenders to Luthien, who rescues Baron but comes too late to save Finrod, who has died. Together they slip into Thangoradrim, where Luthien sings Morgoth to sleep, and Baron cuts one of the Silmarils from his crown. Can I say that the scariest part of this entire encounter for me is the the shape-shifting of Sauron and his... This mm-hmm. is something that we... Isn't it? I, I think should have been added in the cinematic versions of Lord of the Rings because it makes him so much scarier. He has like five forms in the Silmarillion. Mm-hmm. Like he just goes, yeah, yeah this shape's not going to work. Is a, he's a, he's a dark wizard. Yeah. Like it is what he is in the Silmarillion. And so by, by the time we meet him in middle earth, he's, I mean, there's some lore explanations for it to a degree, but he's lost a lot of his ability to take physical form. Um, but I, I agree that the cinematic representation of him as a big flaming eyeball. Um, while I think Peter Jackson manages to make that alarming mm-hmm. pretty effectively, mostly through the use of very effective jump scares. <laughs> um, I think, uh, I think it does. I think I think he is much scarier in the Silmarillion, and I think it it goes to the reality of how mythic this story is that we have a a hunting hound that pins him to the ground uh, and and holds him there until he surrenders the keys to Luthien. Um, like it's it's astonishing the idea of something something mortal that can defeat. Sauron 
in a wrestling. But context, if I read if I if I read far too much into the allegory of it, then uh, we know from every great work of literature that love is the thing that saves everything. And I have been loved dearly in my life, but no one's ever loved me as much as Cortana. And she would absolutely die fighting Sauron for me, which today would basically be him giving her a dirty look. But still, you know, she she'd have fought until until she won. I I think that is something cool in Middle Earth is that it is just simply accurate that love conquers all yeah. in Middle Earth. Uh, and not just romantic love. Lo- we yeah, see it in absolutely. the in, in the in friendship and brotherhood and all of these other forms, but love, pure, honest love of one person for another, romantic or not, really is the ultimate virtue in in Middle Earth. And I think that's what constantly resonates with people. And I think that's why people um get choked up over over Frodo and Sam. Um, uh, Baron and Luthien is just absurdly meaningful to Tolkien. Mm-hmm. It's bi- it's almost biographical because what we've got is we've got Baron wandering in from war, broken and lost and, and essentially catatonic and Luthien awakens him with her song uh, when they fall in love. And then it's this forbidden marriage and all of these things. It's very Luthien's appearance matches Edith's like it's, this is, this is Tolkien writing his own fairy tale. Well, and on their on their tombstones, I do know this about him. He That's has right. uh, Luthien engraved on Edith's tombstone and Baron on his own. Um, and this yes. is it's honestly it's the Lord of the Rings that started my one man crusade to reclaim the word intimacy because I just mm-hmm. love the love in these stories. I love the romance. I love the kinship. I love the friendship. I love the intimacy that human beings and all of these creatures in the stories can form with each other and truly love each other to the point of ultimate sacrifice. And and I think that's that's just the stunning victory in this for me. Yeah. So they return to Thingol, but first are attacked by a great wolf of Morgoths because he also... Uh, made werewolves because he evil. He big mm-hmm. evil. Werewolves, vampires. Yeah, he just like dragons. traps demons inside giant wolves and goes, okay, kill everything. This guy's bad. Yep. So the Morgoth's wolf bites Baron's hand with the Silmaril still grasped in it. Baron Thingol and others set off to find and destroy the wolf, which they do, but in the battle... Both Huan and Baron are killed. Luthien travels to Valinor. Huan dies with his head on Baron's lap. Which is so perfect and so heartbreaking and so mm-hmm. perfectly heartbreaking. Mm-hmm. Luthien travels to Valinor to plead for Baron to be returned. Even though this is not permitted for mortals. So great is their love that Eru grants this and Baron is returned for a time. Though... Luthien must become mortal in exchange. Thingol hires dwarves to make a necklace for the Silmaril he has, but then tries to cheat them, and the dwarves turn on him and kill him and plunder his kingdom. Melian departs Middle-earth in grief, and Baron and Luthien's son, Dior, 
becomes king. But the sons of Feanor attack in pursuit of the Silmaril and kill him. His daughter, Elwing, flees, and soon all Middle-earth is overrun, except for a tiny strip of land along the coast. Meanwhile, the hidden refugees of Nargrathron and Gondolin have been betrayed and sacked, and the refugees have fled to the coast. One of these, Yarendil, marries Elwing, and they have two sons, Elrond and Elros. Yarendil and Elwing sail to Valinor with the Silmaril, breaking the doom of Mandos, and beg for aid from the Valar. The Valar grant this, but forbid them from returning to Middle-earth. Instead, they build a spaceship for him to pilot, and the light of the Silmaril on his brow becomes the morning star. The Valar gather their army and assault Morgoth, utterly destroying his realm, and dragging him as a hostage back to Valinor. They cast him through the doors of night into the void beyond the universe. In this, the War of Wrath, the geography of Middle-earth was wrecked, and many lands sank into the sea. I really, I feel like there should be a soaring guitar solo and just thundering double bass drums for that, that conclusion there. The, the, the War of Wrath is described like so, so like like a Led Zeppelin album. I mean, uh, Arendil leads a host of eagles through the sky into battle against the the newly created flying dragons, yeah. including a dragon called Angalicon the Black, who's so massive that when Arendil finally kills him in battle in the air, the fall of Angalicon smashes the mountains where Morgoth's (laughs) I love it so much. (laughs) It's so good. It's so good. And then the second age. And here we we enter our grand conclusion. The children of Yarendel were given a choice, whether to be counted as men or elves. Elwing, being descended from Baron, was counted as half-elven. Elrond chose to be counted as elf. Elros chose the race of men. Elros and the other faithful men who had aided the elves were given a kingdom in the midst of the sea called Numenor, but were forbidden to travel to Valinor. The elves of Middle-earth were offered a pardon, and many returned to Valinor, but many did not, notably Elrond and Galadriel. Elrond served Gilgalad, the new king of the elves in Middle-earth, but Galadriel still sought her own realm. The servants of Morgoth were also offered pardon, and Sauron seemed to accept it, putting himself at the service of the elves. The two remaining sons of Feanor stole the Silmarils from the camp of the Valar, but in their quest for vengeance, they had become unworthy, and the purity of the Silmarils burned them. One was driven mad and threw himself from a cliff, and the other cast his Silmaril into the sea, and from then on wandered the coast, singing his sorrows. Sauron at first seemed a good help to the elves, and the grandson of Feanor, Celebrimbor. 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 I I made it this far. 
I almost had. I it. mean, you got almost all of them. That one's not. That one's not easy. <laughs> the grandson of Feanor Celebrimbor learned much of crafting from Sauron, but it was a trick. For Sauron was learning the secrets from Celebrimbor as well. Celebrimbor, well, you put this like five times in two sentences. You were trying to catch me here at the end. Celebrimbor, <laughs> it was who made the rings of power. For men and dwarves and elves. But Sauron made one ring in secret and then came with sudden war against Celebrimbor and killed him and stole the rings. His army then... You can, what? <laughs> what? You can tell I've been writing about Middle-earth for like se- for several <laughs> minutes here because my, my cadence and syntax is turning Tolkien. <laughs> yeah. Celebrimbor it was. <laughs> yeah. It came with sudden war. I, I've noticed myself <laughs> slowing down as I read through this. This is like my third time reading it, but I'm still like waiting to hear like an eagle screech over me <laughs> while I read this. As he stole the rings, his army then ravaged the lands in war, in which war Galadriel played a significant part. Eventually, Sauron was stopped by an alliance of elves and men and retreated to Mordor, where he began to build a great kingdom. Meanwhile, the kings of Numenor had fallen to empire building as well and began to dominate the weaker folk of Middle-earth rather than aid them. They made war on Sauron and defeated his army, and Sauron pretended to surrender to them. Once in Numenor, he began to whisper in the king's ear that the Valar forbade them to go to Valinor, because if mortals came to Valinor, they could live forever. Deceived, the kings of Numenor fell into the worship of Morgoth and began to prepare war against the Valar. The faithful of Numenor were led by Elendil, who gathered his people and fled the island before the fleet sailed to the assault of Valinor. The Numenorians, yeah, that's a word, landed on Valinor and were unopposed, for Manwe was unwilling to slay the children of Eru. So he yielded his sovereignty, and Eru brought his wrath on the Numenorians. The earth bent, and the sea rushed in and drowned the army of Numenor. And then the entire island itself was sunk. Only Arendelle and his folk survived, being wrecked on the shore of Middle-earth, where they joined with Gil-galad and made war on Sauron in the last alliance of elves and men. In this war, the elf realm was destroyed, but Sauron was overthrown and the ring taken from him, though Elendil and Gil-galad both died. I did, that is so good, <laughs> Philip. That is so good. <laughs> oh, that, they, like a round of applause. That I I love that summary so much, and it it really helped make sense of everything that I had read. So there is there is Middle Earth. It's easy to get lost in the names of it. Yeah. Um, I I think the thing I like about the the conclusion of the Silmarillion as we get into like the the Rings of Power and the Third Age and. Uh, um, the Akalabeth, the, the downfall of Numenor. And this is the section that the Rings of Power is going to be mostly right. about. is Because this is written so scantily um, in detail, they have the most room for creation. And that's, you know, that's a good place for adaptation. Is mm-hmm. If you're going to adapt something, a good place to put it is 
is somewhere where the author hasn't written a lot. And so you have a lot of space to create. Um, we get some really interesting things. These are things he wrote pretty late. The stuff about Numenor is, is a later development in his, in his writing. Uh, and we see a little bit of um, evolution of Tolkien's thought, I think, in it. Uh, one of the things that's kind of interesting that you see in Numenor is Tolkien makes it, takes time to point out that the laws of Numenor were that succession went to the eldest child, regardless of, um, regardless of male or female. Mm -hmm. And that the place where Numenor's one of the places where Numenor starts to go wrong, uh, is when the, the King who will eventually lead the fleet against Valinor shouldn't be King. He seizes power from his sister, uh, Muriel, who should be king or who should be, uh, who is the rightful queen, but he seizes power from her instead. Um, and this is, this is sort of the downturn of, of Numenor. So we see Tolkien becoming, I think more comfortable with, yeah. um, with feminism. And, and I mean, you look at the time he's writing this, he's, you know, starts middle earth in the thirties and he's writing this part of the Silmarillion in the sixties and seventies. And so you can kind of see Tolkien moving with the times um, he also spends a lot more time writing about Galadriel and Galadriel, of course, is as far as we can see the, the main protagonist mm -hmm. in, in the rings of power, he spends a lot of time writing about Galadriel and she becomes in a lot of ways, the, the through line for the whole story yeah. because she's there at the beginning. She's one of the oldest. I mean, by the time, by the time we get to the Fellowship of the Ring, she is the oldest mortal being on Middle Earth. Right. Um, like there, and and she's been around since the first age. She remembers the you know the light of the trees, mm -hmm. um, all the way out to the end of the third age. And I think one of the really cool things about her through line is there's all of these. Um, Tolkien was clearly trying to write her as as this through line late in his life, it was one of the things he was working on when he passed. Uh, and so we get all these really cool touches where he's trying to connect, use her to connect Lord of the Rings to the greater mythology. So we get this story where um, Fanor, after creating the Silmarils, uh, Fanor looks around and sees in Galadriel's hair, the only thing as beautiful as the Silmarils that he's created. Mm -hmm. And so he goes to Galadriel and asks for three of her tresses uh, that he might work them into some jewel of his own making and, and, and capture their light the way he's captured the light of the trees. And she denies him even one. Yep. Uh, and then flash forward to the Lord of the Rings and Gimli asks for one strand of her hair and she gives him three. Yeah. Uh, yep. And we get that um, Galadriel is falls under the ban and then refuses the pardon yep. when it's offered. And so when we get to the fellowship of the ring, we see this, there's this beautiful song she sings um, where that's just, it's her story. It's um, it's, I sang of leaves of leaves of gold and leaves of gold. There grew of wind. I sang and wind there came and in the branches blew. And she goes on to talk about her time in Valinor remembering the trees, but it comes back to, but if of ships, I now should sing what ship would come to me, what ship can bear me ever back across so wide a sea. Mm -hmm. It's 
her recognition that she has missed her opportunity. Um, and she instead is in this song, essentially praying that Frodo might one day reach Valinor and find rest because she foresees what's going to happen to Frodo. And so when at the end she is given leave to go on the last ship and leave and go back to Valinor, this is, this is the Galadriel that's finally learned wisdom because she passes that test with the ring Yeah, when Frodo tries to give her the ring. So we meet this very headstrong Galadriel in the Silmarillion. And I think it would have been one of the things that I'm like, Oh, I wish he had finished is I think it would have been really cool to see Tolkien design the fullness of her biography of here's how we go from that headstrong young elf who's got him, who's ambitious to create her own realm in middle earth to the elf who's learned the wisdom of rejecting power. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, when it's, when it's offered to her. Um, and I, I just really, I really like that about Tolkien's later work is he's clearly spent a lot of time thinking about the, the corruption of power. Uh, and the corruption of those who exploit others um, for their own gain, and and we see a lot more of that in his later in his later writings. I think he was, you know, obviously in Lord of the Rings, he's obviously got an, an oppose an opposition to that kind of thinking, but it becomes a lot more stark in his later writings, and I think it's really it's really an interesting development um, in that. It is. It is a truly epic journey he takes us on with so many beautifully and fully realized characters at every step. That's why it's, it's again, I appreciate that no one tried to fill in the blanks and to flush out Mm -hmm. the Silmarillion. Um, and we get basically Tolkien concentrate, um, that, that makes me very happy with the respect he was shown by his by his heirs and peers. It does, however, also make me sad because he had so much world that he wanted to give to us, uh, that he, he wanted to create. Well, here is here is the answer to that sadness from from the man himself. Uh in writing to um one of his writer friends later, later on, he kind of expresses what he kind of thought he was doing. And he basically says, I had in mind the idea to build a sketch of a myth. I would sketch the, the peaks and high mountains and other parts of the myth would only be glimpsed from afar and then leave it to other hands and other minds to establish other parts of the story using words and art and music. And so even though he was really protective of his work, it was in his mind that if he did this right, it would become something that other people could take and flesh out the places where, where the image is left blurry. And, and I think that's the really cool thing about fan fiction. <laughs> so you're telling me, which is, you know, wh- that what we're getting the now. man himself 
would not have had a Twitter tirade of fury against the idea of other artists creating a a TV show around his works? I think not. Um, now, whether he would have liked what they made, I can't right, say. Right. Um, he 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 cared a lot, and he was a little bit of a perfectionist, and he thought that, that the details were all really important. And so, I don't know that you would have ever had a film adaptation that would have satisfied him. Fair. Um, no matter how faithful it was attempted, right? Uh, but in principle, yeah, absolutely. He he would have been, I think, especially seeing what what can be done artistically mm-hmm. in film now. Um, because, you know, he was open to film adaptation. P- various people tried to pitch him film adaptations. Famously, the Beatles attempted to pitch <laughs> that, him a film adaptation. I'm so glad that did not happen. Starring themselves. Yeah, I... Yeah. Um, <laughs> and uh, I think he would have, I think he would have liked a lot of that. And he, and he, you know, he gave, he famously gave permission to Sir Christopher Lee to yep. play, uh, to play Gandalf, even though Christopher Lee ended up playing Saruman um, uh, and things like that. So yeah, I think he would have as well. I, I'm also very strongly of the opinion that he would not have objected to, actors of color a hundred percent in any role um that's not i mean he was born a victorian so he probably oh, well, certainly dealt with those those prejudices mm-hmm. in his life but there's not really any kind of we, we really don't see a a lot of tolkien is not obviously a racist no. tolkien is a man of his time but he is not he's not going to be like no all elves have to be white and i don't think that would have and been and as you just discussed the the time in which he wrote he even became a subtly very strong proponent for the feminist movement that he saw in in this this beefing up and strengthening yeah. of the galatriel character yeah i i think I mean, Tolkien was Tolkien was very heavily influenced by. I mean, Tolkien was raised by his mom and right. idolized yeah. her and his aunt, and and was very much, very much influenced by the strong women in his life. And and I think you see that bear out in in places, um, but in Lord of the Rings, with the notable exception of Eowyn, it mostly plays out in women as counselors and advisors people like goldberry and arwen and galadriel Mm -hmm. galadriel is an extremely important character even in lord of the rings even before you have the fleshing out of her in later writing but she is you know she's not along with the fellowship and and tolkien did not you know did not see a world of women in politics that sort of thing i don't know that tolkien would have talked about politics in middle earth i think he probably found that distasteful but Certainly, certainly in Lord of the Rings, we see a much less active role for for female characters, um, with the notable exception of Eowyn, and the somewhat lesser exception of Galadriel. Galadriel actually does something really crazy, but it's only it only shows up in the appendices when he's describing what else is going on in the War of the Ring. We have this little sentence where, uh, at the same time that the battles are all taking place down in Gondor. Galadriel and Celeborn and the Elven King of Mirkwood all come together to attack Dol Guldur, uh, Sauron's old fortress in Mirkwood. 
And after they've overthrown it, Galadriel, and this is the phrase, and there's no explanation for this phrase, Galadriel removed its foundations. Whoa. Whoa. <laughs> Whoa. Um, Yo, what? <laughs> so he, you know, he imagines he imagines her an active participant in events. It's just not part of the narrative. And, and I think that later in life, when you look at the all the different sketches he made of things to write about her, he's constantly making her more active. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I, I certainly don't think he would have, I, I don't know that he would have, you know, being a, being a Victorian guy, I don't know that he would have looked on Galadriel as a military commander fighting combat, but a 21st century Tolkien probably, I don't think would have had a problem with that. Oh. You know, I mean, we, we look at, we, we have to, you know, accept that people are creatures of the time that they live in. And Tolkien certainly was, but I think it's okay that the story evolves beyond that. Um, it's, it should, mm-hmm. it's myth. Myth sh- should evolve beyond that. Yeah. And Lord of the Rings, no less than, no less than star Wars should evolve beyond where, it, where it started. Um, we aren't, in any in no Star Wars movie made in the future are we going to stick the main female character in a slave bikini? <laughs> yeah, absolutely, like that's, just, true. that's never going to happen nope. again, and it shouldn't. Yeah. yeah. So, and does that mean George Lucas is a monster? I mean, I don't honestly know enough about George Lucas personally. <laughs> oh to say, boy, famous. But I'm just kidding. <laughs> I'm inclined. Yeah, well, that's I'm, I'm hedging there. I don't know, but I'm inclined to say. No, that means George Lucas was kind of a dummy back in the 70s when he made that, and I think hopefully has learned better. And I think the same thing would be true with Tolkien, is that the story can evolve beyond the time in which it was written. Uh, and to the to the point of actors of color in these stories, the color of the skin of people in Middle-earth is just so not the most important thing. Right. But also, Tolkien envisioned himself as writing a mythology that would reflect England. Mm -hmm. And you know what? In the 1930s and 40s, when he was writing this stuff, yes, England was entirely white. But it's not anymore. Yeah. Yeah. And so if this is an English mythology, why wouldn't it have people of diverse backgrounds? I don't don't see any issue with it. I don't think there's anything in the least. I think that's the, 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 frankly, dumbest thing to be upset about. Absolutely. There's probably plenty of things before this is all out. <laughs> I'm, I'm certain there will be plenty of things for me to be mad about, <laughs> but the color of the cast skin is not going to be among them. If you are reading any of the works discussing the stories and legends of middle earth and thinking that Tolkien was trying to raise one group of people up and put another group of people down, then I will return you to his thoughts on Beowulf. You're reading it wrong. (laughs) It is not there. It's a cool story and people should be able to see themselves reflected in this story that we just described as being a tale of hope triumphing through love. And uh, that's that's it. Nerds, we need more love. So stop pushing back against it. Let it be. I, I love Lord of the Rings. 
I love mm-hmm. the worlds of Tolkien, and I have genuinely loved deepening my knowledge and experiencing of them with you, my friend. Thanks for thanks for guiding me on this journey here. Thanks for agreeing to do it and accepting the syllabus that I gave you of, re- of required reading. <laughs> I had I had a blast, and for what it's worth, at the point of us recording this, we have both started season one of Rings of Power, and uh, I personally am still very anxious but excited to get farther into it because mm-hmm. I know what they're talking about now, and it's it's rad. To be able to see there are for me so far without, you know, obviously discussing any of the details of the plot because we don't want anyone who hasn't seen it yet to, to be spoiled in any way. It is clearly made by someone who really has a great affection for middle earth and for the works of Tolkien. It's clearly trying very hard yes. to be Tolkien, Tolkienic. And there are moments of dialogue or visuals visuals are beautiful beautiful there are moments of dialogue moments of artistic visuals where i looked and i was like yeah that felt like that felt like in the the opening that's not easy to achieve in the opening when they're just giving the quickest summary beautiful and you see a battlefield Mm -hmm. suspended in midair i was like this this is how he was talking this is how he told us of the end of a battle this this, and yeah. it was it was literally at that because we've talked about our trepidations extensively. It was at that like three minutes in that I went, I will watch this season. You have me, you have me for yeah. a full season. I want you to work. I do. Yes, I, I I very badly want this to be great. I I hope that it will. Um, so far, there are things that have happened that have made me go. I hope that's not the direction they're going, Mm -hmm. but nothing that's made me go, Oh, come on. Why? Like there's, there's nothing about it. That's just like that felt entirely wrong. It's been because I care so much about this world because this world is so important to me. There are plenty of places where I'm like, I really hope you do this right. You've got to thread this needle, but it may even be that at the end of this, I will be disappointed but not everyone will be right. And maybe because they watch this, some people will go and read Lord of the Rings. We have said this. I call that a win. We have said this about the Witcher. We've said this about Dune. We've said this about almost everything we have covered in one shape or another. If the medium that we don't connect with gets you into something that can be meaningful for you, I'm all about it. And as meaningful as, as middle earth has been to us, no matter how good or bad this is at the end, if it gets someone else to to read and have new bedtime stories for the, the future generations, then it's a big win. And I'm glad it's happening. Mm-hmm. And yet again, what a time to be a nerd, huh? Right. Seriously. Come on. Philip, if people so want good. to gripe about my mispronunciations and the fact that you didn't correct me as much as you should have, or if they have questions for the Middle Earth professor, where can they find you on the internet? What are you going to be doing? I mean, if you have questions and want to hear way longer answers than you probably intended, um, we have a Discord. Mm-hmm. There's an I never got into that Discord uh, where I would be. There is no time in my life <laughs> where I'm not happy to 
talk about middle can't earth confirm. Like there's no time you can't imagine <laughs> the restraint i have exercised in this episode um so feel free to hit me up there if you want want more middle earth um you can find me on twitter at summerhawk86 and i guess ask me middle earth questions there although i can't imagine how i could possibly answer any useful middle earth question in that few <laughs> words you just respond uh, with the link to the discord <laughs> <laughs> uh, if you want to see me telling stories that are inevitably inspired by the optimism and hope of Tolkien, um, you can find me helping tell stories over on uh, on YouTube at The Laughing Tree, uh, where I run a D&D uh, actual play called Kyber Shards that you're a player. I in. have heard of this. And that's mostly, oh, uh, and then I'm also a cast member on a RPG podcast called Eberron Renewed. If you want to get in touch with me on any socials, you can find me at SorryBTR. The O is a zero. I'm also on YouTube. Aside from the laughing tree, you can find me at the Game Pass Guru, going through way too many video games on the Microsoft Game Pass. Philip, thanks again, man. It's always a pleasure to chat, and it's a pleasure to get worked up about things we love like this. So thanks for hanging, man. Yeah, thanks, man. Rest of y'all, thanks for listening, and thanks for getting into it with us. Oh, 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 oh,